Listen now to the word of God. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on his riches, the riches and his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So reads the word of God. For the last three Sundays, we've been hearing Paul spell out the patterns of sin that result when people suppress the truth of God in expression of their unrighteousness. We might even say in confirmation of their unrighteousness. And I've appreciated deeply how both Pastor Nick and Pastor Kip finished that section of Romans 1. If you haven't heard that three parts that we uh, covered from 118 through 32. Please go back and listen on the website. It is helpful and relevant teaching input for our day. But a shift happens here as chapter 2 opens that's at once impossible to miss, but also not immediately easy to understand. The clear part is that Paul moves from third person to second person. He moves from talking about they and them 
in 119 through 32 to talking to you in chapter 2, verse 1, and what follows. That's the part that's easy to see. And while there are a few possibilities to, as to why, the one that suits the context, context best here, I believe, is that he's shifting attention from talking to the Greeks, talking to the Gentiles, to talking to the Jews. So there's a change in addressee and therefore a change in pronouns. The challenge arises because Paul doesn't make it immediately clear that that's what he's doing. In fact, if you read through this text, it's not until verse 17, which is actually, God willing, the first verse of next week's text, it's not until verse 17 that we can confirm that he actually is addressing the Jews. He makes it clear there. And even then, though, it's not absolutely certain that he started addressing the Jews all the way back in verse 1 here. In fact, some suggest he doesn't, but I really do believe that that's the best option here is to believe that with chapter 2, verse 1, he's transitioning now to talking to the Jews in the Roman church, having talked about Gentile unbelief. He's now going to be talking about Jewish unbelief. And it's likely that he's a bit ambiguous here from the start. We can understand that by this point in Paul's career. We just studied Acts together. If you're newer to us, I'm sorry you're missing that backdrop, but it is really helpful to have Acts in mind as we move through the letters of Paul, especially the Romans letter here. We discovered as we moved through Acts that the Jews didn't respond too well to criticism, and especially not criticism from Paul, who they were perceiving as a traitor. And so we can understand why Paul may have wanted to transition softly into addressing the Jews and have a whole lot of water under the bridge by the time he made it clear that he was actually talking to them. And that's what he appears to be doing here in chapter 2. So we see that transition, and hopefully that helps us uh, both appreciate the clear part of it and have an understanding of the unclear. But that aside... The therefore here, as chapter 2 opens, suggests that this passage is in some way the result or the outcome, the extension of what has come before it. That's another challenge that's hard to get past. It's hard to understand why that word is there. In fact, some translations leave it out because it's so hard to understand. I think it's there and it's worth figuring out what we're supposed to do with it. Because if he is moving on to the Jews here, it's not at all easy to understand how the therefore works. How is it, for instance, that the Jews have no excuse, which is what we read in verse 1? How is it that the Jews have no excuse before God as his judgment is being poured out based on what he has just said about the Gentiles? That doesn't quite make sense. So how does the therefore work? And what's it telling us? Well, we want to look into this text and find an answer to that question this morning. The actual question we'll be answering and the application that will draw from it is a bit more important than that, but that therefore helps us appreciate this text in a way that we might not otherwise perceive. So we're going to look into the text to find an answer to that question, and as we, as we do, I believe we're also going to hear a sober word of warning for ourselves today, a tailored, specific targeted word of warning to ourselves that we really do want to hear something for right here and right now today so let's walk through this text together and see 
what we find. We're going to explore it under the two headings that we have listed there in your bulletin. So that's going to be our outline this morning, the structure and substance of Paul's argument, and then the instruction and implications of Paul's assertion. So the first one will really be the text, and then we'll talk just for a few minutes about that, um, that word of warning that we should hear from it. So first of all, the structure and substance of Paul's argument. Under this first heading, we're going to walk through the whole of the text in three parts. And I haven't given you that wording, so I'll just give it to you as we go. As a matter of fact, I might even give it to you before we go, uh, before we start off into it. Three headings proving to ourselves that it's not impossible, by the way, to move through larger chunks of Scripture, even in Romans. We're going to take 16 verses of Romans this morning, and I've, uh, again, been joking with us a bit about that. Romans is one of those books we take a word at a time, right? We'll get to word three next week in week five of our series, right? So, um, but we're going to take 16 verses this morning. We're not doing so just for the purpose of proving we can move more quickly, though. We're doing it because this passage is all of one piece. And it is really helpful to see Paul's arguments, almost like listening to a sermon. To quote one who summarizes it well, Paul's purpose in this section is to place the Jew in the same category as the Gentile sinner of chapter 1. There's the topic sentence. That's what chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, really 1 to 29 is doing. It's putting the Jew in the same category as the Gentile sinner in chapter 1. He does that in three stages. Verses 1 through 5 contain the heart of his indictment. That's Paul's charge against the Jews. The Jews do the same things the Gentiles do and are therefore liable to the same judgment. He then follows this with two paragraphs in which he departs from his accusation. Legally, technically, it's called a diatribe here. He's actually laying out charges against the Jews And he lays them out in verses 1 through 5, and then he explains them in the next two paragraphs. He does it by, he's going to explain or elaborate on the charge that he's just made. He does it by, first of all, in verses 6 through, or uh, yeah, verses 6 through 11, by showing that God's impartiality demands that he should have no favorites, but that he should treat every person, whether Jew or Gentile, in the very same way. And then in verses 12 through 16, The Jews receiving of the law doesn't make their situation any different, significantly different from that of the Gentiles. So he wants to address that point. For it's not having the law, but doing the law that matters before God. That's the point he'll make. And we'll also see in that section, in any case, that the Gentiles do have the law of God in a certain sense. And that's important for us to remember, important for us to understand and process and even stand on, use in our conversations about the gospel right here and now today. So that's the structure of Paul's argument. Verses 6 through 11 and then 12 through 16 each in turn explain how to understand the charge in verses 1 through 5. There's the overview. So we'll put a heading over each of these three paragraphs toward understanding the substance of what Paul is saying here. So let me give them to you, just in case you're one that likes to write those things down. Verses 1 through 5, we're going to put a title over that, The Indictment of the Godless Gentiles is Extended to the Self-Righteous Jews. The Indictment 
of the godless Gentiles is extended to the self-righteous Jews. That's verses 1 through 5. Then verses 6 through 11, God shows no partiality to the Jews over the Gentiles with regard to his judgment. Wow, what an important statement that is to understand. God shows no partiality to Jews over Gentiles with regard to his judgment. I just have to say, even while mentioning that, such a massively important point for a healthy biblical theology is to understand that statement. We'll be unpacking that for the rest of this study in Romans. Third, verses 12 through 16. Having the law doesn't give any advantage to Jews if they don't keep it. Having the law doesn't give any advantage to Jews if they don't keep it. Right? And we might even say now, because we're not going to say it later, that um, the advantage it gives them to keep it is that it leads them to salvation. It doesn't provide their salvation. It does exactly what Galatians 3 and 4 says it does. It leads them to salvation. It leads them to recognize Christ as promised Messiah and as substitute sin bearer. Let's get into verses 1 through 5. The indictment of the godless Gentiles is extended to the self-righteous Jews. And here, right off the bat, in verse 1, comes our challenging statement that we've already made much of in our introduction this morning. So let's take it as a unit in verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. And remember, right now, we don't know who the you is. We find out the you from verse 17 and read it back. But I do believe it's best to understand these as the Jews because the argument is rooted in Old Testament Scripture, as we'll see. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So what thought does therefore tie off as it appears here? Well, in light of the fact that a new group moves into view here, it seems best to find the answer to that question, to find the referent of the therefore all the way back in the topic sentence that stands over this entire paragraph, this whole section of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. The, the, the statement that includes all people, not just Gentiles or not just Jews. So it's not just the people that Paul is talking about in chapter 1 when he introduces in chapter 1 verse 18 the statement that I believe is being referred back to by the therefore. It's 118, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then he starts off in verse 19 talking about the Gentiles and then talks about the Jews. This is God's revelation of his wrath against all unrighteousness. It's there against the Gentiles, therefore Jews, it's also there against you. And that's the transition, I believe, we see there. He then proceeds to describe the evil of those whose unrighteousness shows up in their self-idolatry, pursuing gratification in ways that run intentionally contrary to God's self-revelation in creation. That's what we've been hearing about the last three weeks from chapter 1. And now he turns his attention to those who judge such debased expressions even though they themselves are equally sinful. The first group 
proves their sinfulness by living contrary to God's design of nature, even though he says that he's made it plain to them and even shown it to them. That's the language of 119. So their unrighteousness shows itself in their suppression of God's truth in such a clear way that they are without excuse before him. Chapter 1, verse 20. Now a new group shows up. Their unrighteousness is displayed by passing judgment on the first group, such that now we see in 2.1 they are without excuse as well. The new group shows their unrighteousness by passing judgment on the first group, sinful as they themselves are, even as they pass that judgment. It's hard to claim any ignorance, by the way, of God's standard when you're using it to condemn someone else's practices. And that's the very point Paul is making with the Jews. You can't hide behind this and say you don't understand the law when you're referencing it to attack the practices of the Gentiles. And the very same things here, when he says you're doing the very same things, it's hard to know what that means. Are we talking about that entire list from 119 to 32 that they're doing all of this? The answer is... Perhaps, yeah, but I don't think that's the point Paul is making here primarily. I think what he is referring to is not the entirety of 119 to 32, but he's talking particularly about those sins that we heard about last week. The, was it 21 descriptors in 129 to 31? And perhaps especially 129 by itself, verse 129, that, that those four categorical headings over the lengthy list of sins perhaps. Do you remember that? All manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. These very same things are present in you Jews. You're practicing them yourselves. And yet you're appealing to God's law to condemn the Gentiles who are practicing them. And ignoring yourself. Thinking for some reason that doesn't apply to you. Paul wants to put it right in front of their faces that it does. Now we'll see how this argument progresses. So it's their knowledge then of God's standard that turns the spotlight back on themselves, the Jews, and exposes their own sinfulness. They mistook the, the, the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience with sin. They, they mistook it and didn't understand what it was intended to bring about. He mistook his kindness and forbearance and patience as some sort of evidence of their good standing with God. Proving that they will somehow escape his judgment, verse 3. They entirely missed the point of verse 4 that God's kindness is meant to lead them to repentance, not to judgmentalism. But, verse 5, instead... Because of your hard and impenitent heart, Paul writes, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The Jews are just as much under the wrath of God as are the Gentiles. That's what we see here. For differing reasons, they are equally without excuse. Chapter 1, verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 1. So now the next two paragraphs, Paul gives an explanation of why. 
So explanation number one, moving into our second category under point one here. God shows no partiality to Jews over Gentiles with regard to his judgment. That's the main point. That's explanation number one. The Jews are just as much under the wrath of God as the Gentiles because God shows no partiality to them with regard to his standard of righteousness. You see it explicitly stated as this paragraph comes to a conclusion in verse 11. God shows no partiality. Such a preeminent statement in this text that it's the title of our message this morning. God shows no partiality. But he begins ramping up toward that statement all the way back in verse 6 as he transitions into this first explanation of the charges that he's made. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works, and then he continues on to make his point. This is what should catch the attention of the Jews. This is where he's appealing to Old Testament Scripture. This is the explicit teaching from the Jewish Scriptures. Psalm 62, the Lord will render to a man according to his work. Hosea 12, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. The Jews knew this. They knew the teaching of the law and the prophets. So the Jews know the truth of what Paul is stating here. They know that the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience is intended not just for their repentance, but is intended as a model for what their repentant life ought to look like. What they've received from God, they should be passing on to their brothers. Not the judgmentalism that's going to the Gentiles because of their sin, but the very same qualities that God exhibits toward them. And that's what we see as verse 7 continues on. To those who, by patience, there it is, that very same word coming back, now intending to describe the righteous. To those who, by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, verse 8, and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. In summary, verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Verse 10, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Why? God shows no partiality, verse 11. So there's God's standard. There's God's standard put up in front of the eyes of the Jews yet again. The Jews have a privileged place with God due to the role that he appointed them to play in salvation history. That is undeniable. They were the ones who received the law. They were the ones through whom the Messiah was delivered. But none of that changes the standard of God's righteousness for them. It doesn't set a dual standard for the Jews. They are saved by the very same means as the Gentiles are. And even though it was delivered through the Jews, it was for the nations, just as it was promised through Abraham. As we read this, though, we might also be inclined to hear Paul saying that salvation comes from human effort. Did that catch your ear to the point where it raises a question? It should, because it's there on the page. <laughs> he will render to each one according to his works. Is that the basis of salvation? But I would have to say to us that we will find statements like that throughout Romans because 
Paul is on his way to making a point, and he has, just has not gotten to that point yet. What he's saying here is true, but by the time we get to chapter 3 and especially chapter 6 and beyond, we will recognize that it's, salvation is not by works, it's by faith. And we walk by the law, not by human effort, but because when we receive the Spirit, we have been given the status of, of sinless according to the law, receiving it by faith. That's where he's headed. Here, he's not there yet. He's making a different point at this point. An important one, but a preliminary one to that question. That's why the language can trouble us just a bit here. Here, he's explaining why they are under God's judgment, not how they get out from under it. Why are they under God's judgment? And now he's about to explain further. So that moves us on into verses 12 through 16 and the second part of his explanation. The heading over this section Having the law doesn't give any advantage to Jews if they don't keep it. We spoke about that just a few minutes ago, just sort of extemporaneously. We see it again here in the flow. All right, we understand. Paul's not saying that when they do keep it, they're saved by it. He's just saying it's no benefit to them if they don't keep it. Just having it doesn't do them any good. So this summarizes the preliminary point that Paul is making before he can talk about how people are saved, which he will do at the end of this section as 321 and following begins. Before he can talk about how people are saved, he has to talk about what they need to be saved from. And that's what he's doing here in chapter, from the middle of chapter 1 through chapter 2 and into chapter 3. He needs to talk about what problem they have that needs to be resolved. And their problem is sin that separates them from God and places them under his sentence of death. Verse 12, that's where we see it. And that problem faces Jew and Gentile alike. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Speaking of the Gentiles who suppress the truth of God revealed in creation, all right, Continuing on in verse 12, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Speaking of the Jews who receive God's standard and display their knowledge of it by appealing to it to judge the Gentiles. So not only is it impossible to miss that all have sinned, whether under the law or apart from it, it also becomes clear that, verse 13, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who are justified. That will be explained further as we progress. But the point that we get here is just having the law is not enough. You have to obey it. That's the point Paul is making, and he's suggesting that the Jews are not doing that. It's not enough to have the law. You have to obey it. That's true because as we have seen, God makes his standard known in more than one way. We've seen that already in this letter. That's what makes the letter of Romans so relevant to us today. God makes his standard known in more than one way. We call this general and special revelation. Romans 1 talks about general revelation. Romans 2 moves into special revelation, appealing to the Old Testament scriptures to make the point. 
in general revelation, everyone can view it and participate in it. General revelation is visible to all, all the time in creation. That's what we heard back in chapter 1, verse 20. Special revelation is available only to those who look at it. Special revelation is Scripture, Old and New Testament alike, and the person and work of Jesus Christ. Only those who look into that are going to be confronted by it. But general revelation confronts every single person who has ever lived to the point where God's testimony about that is you are without excuse when you've seen what I've made in nature. Both general and special revelation communicate God's presence and power with sufficient clarity that all humanity is without excuse before God. That is a stunning statement. That's a statement that lays aside the distracting questions about world evangelization that are so often posed when we talk about the exclusivity of the gospel. What happens to those people who have never heard? My friends, just a, a quick parenthesis. This is not in my notes, so no extra charge for this this morning. <laughs> okay. If a God can pick up a person, Philip, and put him in another place to address an Ethiopian who's on his way back, the whole category disappears about what about those who haven't heard? This is a sovereign God who can speak the universe into existence. He can interrupt the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, on the road to Damascus. Say, what are you doing? Call him to saving faith. As God purposes to spread the gospel through his church, but we miss the point drastically and dramatically if we think that this God is not capable of getting his word to the ends of the earth by whatever means he purposes, and we don't have to leave the book before we see that happening already in the days of the early church. He can enable people to speak different languages to communicate the gospel. Such things as this don't stand in the way of a God like that. Amen? Good, good. So both general and special revelation communicate God's presence and power with sufficient clarity that all humanity is without excuse before him. And Paul's argument continues then, and as it does, we'll see that there's no salvation without God's special revelation in Jesus. But we already see that there is sufficient clarity in general revelation to judge people justly if they reject God. That's an important point to keep clear in our minds. Salvation is not possible apart from God's special revelation in Jesus. But there's sufficient clarity in general revelation to judge people justly for rejecting God. So, there's been no human being on the planet in all of human history who's been left without a witness to the presence and power of God. There is no human being on the planet in all of human history 
who has been left without a witness to the presence and power of God. We are all accountable, and that statement has to be true in order to make us accountable. That's exactly what Paul is teaching here. Verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. That's stunning. We're going to talk about that in a moment. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So Jews have the law and the promises of God, but they need to honor them by humble, repentant obedience rather than to idolize them in self-righteous pride if they want to escape the judgment of God. And the Gentiles may have no familiarity with the law of God, but they're confronted daily with the testimony of His creation and show by their response to that that they're not missing that witness. Do you hear me on that? They show by their response that they are not missing that witness. How? Most simply put, if they weren't the image-bearing creatures living in God's creation, that bears testimony to His presence and power, just as it does, then there would be no way they would have lived ordered, productive, cultured lives like we're used to here in DuPage County and like happens in vastly differing ways all around the world. The way we live demonstrates a knowledge of something beyond what we could have received by any source other than God, and it stands in testimony against us when we say, I didn't know. But that moves us into heading number two, so we're going to move into that heading now. The instruction and implications of Paul's assertion. We're going to divide this one into two parts as well. It's a lot easier. General instruction and implications from this passage, and then special instruction and implications from this passage, loosely following those categories of general and special revelation. So this, introduction, this instruction and implication comes to us generally and specifically, essentially to Gentiles and to Jews, respectively. But we learn something from both. So general instruction and implications from this passage. Straight to the heart of the matter, right from the beginning here, we often make things far too complicated when we try to figure out how it is that Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature what the law requires. We work way too hard at trying to figure out how that happens. This is separating humanity from the rest of creation such that there's a uniqueness about humanity that transcends culture. Different cultures exhibit their familiarity with it in different ways, but all humanity exhibits their understanding and their receptivity to general revelation. We think that Paul is telling us, for instance, that people can somehow be justified before God just by following their consciences here, but that's not true, and he will correct any misconception that way as he continues in his argument. But that misses the point that Paul is making by once again jumping ahead in the argument. Here, his point is that no one, Jew or Gentile, will escape God's judgment claiming they didn't know that there was a standard to hit. 
As we've seen, the Jews appealed to that standard in their judgment of the Gentiles. So that one's taken care of. We'll say more about it in just a moment. But the Gentiles exposed their awareness of that statement each time they restrained their behavior in a way that could only have been, they could only have known to do because God has made them aware of the standard. By writing the work of the law on their hearts so that their conscience bears witness to it, just as verse 13 says. So when anyone makes a moral decision that shows, for instance, consideration for other people, they're revealing their knowledge of God's law. And it isn't subtle. These aren't subtleties that differ from one culture to another. We're not going to find it by comparative religions and seeing how different people respond to God differently. That's not where the answer lies. The answer lies in separating the human race from the rest of the animal creation. Because we're unique as image-bearing creatures. What Paul is talking about here sets apart the image-bearing creatures from the rest of the animal kingdom. So it isn't subtle. If we're descended from animals, then survival of the fittest is the rule of our existence. And here, I'm not poking at the theory of evolution. I'm just stating a fact. That is how things progress. That's the foundation survival of the fittest. So that's what we inherit if we are of one piece and not distinct from the rest of the animal kingdom. And we see that survival of the fittest rule depicted throughout the animal kingdom. If there's only food for one to eat, the strong is going to have that food. Every time. So, whenever we as human beings, I would say as image-bearing creatures, limit our actions for the good of another, for any reason at all, we're showing our inherent knowledge of the moral standard that rises above survival of the fittest in favor of something more noble. All the way from meeting another's need to celebrating another's victory. Things that are uniquely human that exhibit that we live differently. We are capable of such things as compassion and mercy and love. We see things look like that in the animal kingdom, but it doesn't, those are the exceptions. It runs contrary to the nature of how things work. Yes, we might see a, a, a mother lion taking particular care of a wounded cub, but if that cub is a runt, she's going to leave it behind. And so forth, over and over again. There's a distinction where we recognize that not only is love and mercy present, but it's binding. We ought to do that. It's not just that from time to time we stumble into it. That's distinctly human, and it reveals our knowledge of the standard. Each time we get angry with our neighbor and forgive or even just talk out the conflict, instead of murdering him or burning down his house or poisoning his dog, we're revealing our knowledge of the moral standard that rises above survival of the fittest. 
If we've lost our job and are hungry and we know that there's food in the, in the refrigerator a hundred feet away at our neighbor's house, we don't just go and club them and take the food. We know that that's not how it works. We're human beings. And there's a law written on our hearts and on our consciences. It's undeniable by the way we live. What we learn here in Romans 2 is that this standard comes from God. This is some of the general instruction and implications that we learn from this passage, helping us to understand what it means that the law of God is written on our heart. Moving into the second category, special instruction and implications from this passage. Regarding the special instruction and implications, Paul is focusing in on the guilt of the Jews that has no excuse. It develops due to their sense that they enjoy a privileged status with God that insulates them against His judgment. And the problem is they believe their status is established by His Word. That's one of the reasons it runs so deep. This isn't just ethnic pride on their part. They have the Word of God on that, that they are an unusual and a unique people. And they think that that has insulated them against feeling God's judgment. But in reality, what they're doing is holding on to the blessings that he's promised in his word without living the life that he required in order to receive those blessings under the law. And that's what's exposed through their judgment of the Gentiles. They're doing the very same things and yet sitting in judgment of others for that purpose. And this is also where we need to hear this passage's warning for us personally. The new covenant is different from the old. And one of those differences, in fact the profound difference, is that Christ has come. And the sins of all who believe have been removed. They're under the blood. The new aeon has begun that we preached about in Romans 5, way back at the beginning of this series. We're living in that new reality of life and spirit even while we continue to battle the old reality of flesh and death. But the new has come. We actually have been cleansed from our sin to walk in newness of life. That's the language Paul will use over in chapter 6, verse 4. And the primary way that shows itself, cleansed from sin, walking in newness of life, is in a soft and penitent heart, to use the language of verse 5, right here in chapter 2, to show a soft and repentant heart that looks on neighbor with love and with mercy rather than with judgment. It's one of the fundamental differences moving from the Old to the New Testament. The Spirit of God is with His people now, enabling them to say no to the flesh and yes to righteousness, not perfectly, but increasingly. We just heard the reference this morning to 2 Corinthians 3 and moving from one degree of glory to another as we grow in the likeness of Christ. So, in a similar way to what we see with Israel here, we in the church who profess saving belief in Jesus 
and then view our tragically fallen world through bitterly judgmental eyes? There's genuine reason to doubt whether we've truly been saved from God's judgment or whether we remain under it. Anytime we go that direction, self-righteous judgmentalism, rather than this one, love and mercy and forgiveness, the benefits of the new covenant are not evident in us. And we need to hear the warning of Romans 2. That's the warning we want to hear this morning. If there's a chance that we could be repeating the failure of Israel here, we're going to want to know about that and stop it short with repentance and faith. The very things that verse 5 identifies are missing in the Jewish response to the Gentiles. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 10, talking about the Jews, but talking to a Gentile church about them and their history, he said, with most of them, God was not pleased. Talking about Israel during the days of the Exodus, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. They felt the judgment of God there. Now, he said in the very next verse, these things took place as examples as they did. Here in Romans 2 is written for us. But receiving the work of Christ, I gradually began to be transformed into his likeness. From one degree of glory to another, through the experiences of this life where I have the opportunity over and over again to say, no, that is a sinful impulse. I will not go there. By the grace of God, I will go here. Holy Spirit, enable my obedience to the Word of God in my response to the sinfulness of the world I see around me. Don't let me go in the direction of self-righteous nationalism and judgment. It's a particular temptation in our nation and our day. Help me to default to my kingdom citizenship and proclaim that which truly reconciles to people who so clearly and desperately need it. There's our calling. There's where the warning presses us toward the love and mercy that comes from God by faith in Christ such that we stand ready for verse 16, that day when according to the gospel, God judges the secrets, the true spiritual status, the secrets of each one's heart by Christ Jesus. What a gospel. Amen? Let's pray together and then celebrate the Savior who provided it. As I pray, please, musicians and communion servers, join me at the front. Heavenly Father, what a text of Scripture this is. It, it once appears to be addressed to a population that, um, for the most part, isn't here this morning, talking about something that, for the most part, isn't our experience. 
And yet we hear in it the very word that we need to hear for our day and age on the wake of what we've heard over these past three Sundays about the evidence of the sinfulness of this world. Oh, Father, I pray that by your grace and for your glory, you would make known through the people of this body of believers the character of the Lord Jesus Christ who walked according to your law sinlessly, perfectly, and now has provided us a salvation that entitles us to the very same description eternally. Help us now, Lord God, in the week that is ahead to live in the realities of that salvation that is ours, shining the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to those around us to the praise of your glory. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.